popular entertainment and news media, people worry a lot about robots. You know, the kind that show up, guns blazing to take over the world and send humanity packing? These days, those robots are more likely to be the man behind the curtain who's making sure your Amazon packages and DoorDash food deliveries arrive timely. The algorithms that drive Uber and Instacart are the robots that power the gig economy, with human beings providing the last mile of service. Other programs like Upwork are allowing skilled professionals to disperse their working days over multiple projects and clients. The robots aren't coming, they're already here, and they're rewiring our economy and creating both uncertainty and opportunity. What should we make of this brave and strange new world where artificial intelligence integrated with the global reach of the web is rewriting the rules and experience of work? Some think that not only are we going to be changing jobs more rapidly in the automated economy, we're more likely to be working more than one job, building portfolios of work as we dip into and out of a networked economy, mixing and matching our skills to meet the needs of the market. A dynamic and fluid economy like this has profound implications for not just the way we work, but how we organize and finance all the things that come along with work, like health benefits and retirement. In this episode of Hardly Working, we're joined by Laia Palagashvili of George Mason University and the Mercatus Center, a libertarian think tank, for conversation about the gig economy, where it came from, how it's going, and what it means for American workers. Laia Palagashvili, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks, Brent, for having me on your show. Happy to be here. So great to have you. This is a topic much on everyone's mind these days. I think that we have, since the pandemic in particular, been thinking a lot about some kinds of gig economy workers, especially the people who deliver our meals and food and Amazon packages and and all of these kind of vital services that we've had to rely on. And we can see just how important I think the segment of the economy is. So we're really looking forward to hearing about your research on this, which I I find fascinating and I think is helpful as the policy community kind of starts, you know, trying to figure out what, if any, role government has in managing, regulating, guiding what's going on in the gig economy. So I think your research is a really valuable contribution there. Before we get into that, though, I always like to ask our guests to spend a few minutes talking about themselves. We are a podcast about vocation, career, and work, and how people get to where they are in their careers. And you don't spring full-blown into a think tank researcher out of nowhere, that you have to come from somewhere on this. So walk us through a little bit of your background and journey toward your own career. Okay. So I actually, I, I never... I never thought I would be an economist or a researcher or anything in this role. I come from a family of immigrants, and we moved to the United States when I was seven years old. As a classic cliche about immigrant parents, the only acceptable careers for their kids are in law or medicine. (laughs) So I had to be either a lawyer or a doctor. And given I wanted nothing to do with medicine, (laughs) I was always fixated on a career as a lawyer. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. And and that's what I tried to pursue, by the way. I took the LSAT. I interned at... uh, When I was an undergraduate, I interned at a public interest law firm, the Institute for Justice. It it was in a research role there. But I got to know some lawyers, talk to them about their experiences in, in law school. And I got to understand a little bit more about the career paths and trajectories of lawyers. 
And also I didn't do that well on the LSAT. So I kind of failed in that I didn't do well enough to get into a top, top school, which is what I, I needed to do. So I ended up having to, you know, cl- close that, close that path because it, it came to a dead end. But thankfully, at that same time, I had really, really great mentors as my professors. I was an undergraduate economics major at George Mason University and some economics professors there like Pete Betke and Don Boudreau, they really guided me and, and showed me this new path of academia and research. And like I said before that, I never thought about this career, partly because up until that point, I never really had anyone in my life who was in that career. So I wasn't exposed to it. And I find that when you're not really exposed to a career path, or you don't have many, many people in your life who are in those careers, you're a little bit afraid (laughs) to go down that road because you don't know what it's about. And you don't know where it will lead you to. So I ended up Following this new avenue into academia and research, I got my PhD in economics at George Mason University. And I'm very thankful for that because I realize now George Mason economics is one of the few programs in the US that really nourish a graduate student's intellectual curiosity. And I have friends now who went through economics PhD programs in many different universities in the US. And some of them just come out of the programs unhappy about their choices and those programs. And it felt like their curiosity got crushed there to the point where they actually didn't want to take on more research roles. And some of them ended up in finance, for example, some of my friends now. What does it look like to be in a program where you feel like your curiosity is being nourished? So at George Mason, so one of the main things is always about the type of questions you're asking. So Pete Bedke used to say these lines and he's like, look out the window and ask what do you think is interesting or fascinating or something that like you want to know how did this happen? And for me, I grew up in Armenia, which is a post-Soviet country. It was really hard living there for my parents. And there was a lot of disruption. I think about my cousins who still live there or are still in these, they actually, some of them moved to Southern Russia and they don't have access to a lot of opportunities, even though we're, where you might be similar in talent. So that was always like a question that got like stuck in my head forever as I was growing up. And I was like, why is it that like I'm exposed to like all of these different opportunities being in the US, but like we don't see some of these things, you know, I don't see it from my cousins living in some of these countries. So we started thinking about things like institutions and why institutions are important. And I think that like allowing me to kind of follow that like curiosity is how they let me nourish my intellectual curiosity, if that makes sense. I think what happens in other programs is they say, okay, interesting, but there's not enough data on this, or we can't, like, you would need to figure out like the perfect, economists are obsessed with causality, right? So you would need to figure out the perfect way to determine causality. Whereas at George Mason, they let you think about questions and let you pursue questions where institutions were at the forefront, if that makes sense. And it didn't have to be questions about causality and the methodology didn't have to be all the same, which is using instrument variables and things like that. So we actually learned how to do really great like qualitative economics work. And for me, that was really exciting and interesting. By the way, Eleanor Ostrom, who was the first woman she was a political scientist to win the Nobel Prize in economics. We got exposed to her work. And one of the great things she did was 
she honed down on this qualitative approach, this fieldwork, survey, methodology, experimental, and having like a multiple methods approach to understanding different questions. And also understanding that with some type of questions, you can't always use like statistical analysis. So I think kind of having that open mind to different methodologies and allowing us to follow our own curiosity is how they nourished it. That's really interesting. When I hear you talking about this, it reminds me of a number of conversations that I've had with Russ Roberts. And it's a topic that he covers actually a lot on his uh, econ talk on his podcast, the need for different kinds of insights into questions and not being so completely reliant on the quantitative side. That's something I've really taken to heart in my own work, which is how do we kind of incorporate kind of the narratives of our understanding into our research work rather than always restricting ourselves to what we can demonstrate in quantitative data. So I, that's that's fascinating. Okay, very helpful. I do want to move on now to your actual research. So why don't you give us the overview of the papers that we're going to be talking about in this conversation? All right. So we have two papers. My co-author and I, Paula Suarez, did these two papers on gig economy or as I like to call them, independent workers. And I can talk a little bit more about why we want to distinguish between saying gig economy and independent workers. I'm happy to talk about that later on. But that first, the, pa- the first paper is entitled Employee versus, versus Independent Worker, a Framework for Understanding Work Differences. So in that paper, we start off with the transaction cost economics research to guiding us in understanding what, in theory should be the real work differences between employees and independent contractors or independent workers. And basically what that research says is that, look, some types of jobs require more interdependent, interconnected team production. And it's difficult to figure out what each individual worker contributes to the overall output. And then other types of jobs are more what's called individual output-based. Now, the job, the type of jobs that are more individual output-based are more likely to be independent work jobs or gig economy jobs or freelancing. And the types of jobs that are more interconnected or interdependent team production are more likely to be employee roles. And so my co-author and I, we said, okay, let's empirically test this. So we We do this by basically hand collecting every job that is available from over 100 gig economy platforms in the US. And then we match those jobs to a Department of Labor sponsored database called ONET. And from that database, we look through all of their job characteristics and we pool every single one that we think would be indicative of team production. So questions that talk about like shared communication, shared responsibility, shared results, a lot of coordination. By the way, we also then create an independent work index or a gig economy index for the more popular term. And we find that for every job characteristic that we pulled and for our gig economy index, there are significant differences in the nature of work between employees and independent workers. And we can think about this, you know, anecdotally too, or with specific examples, like a freelance copywriter or freelance screenwriter that you'll find on these digital platforms. It's much easier to find these type of roles on digital platforms or to buy that service. Like if you need a screen 
write a screenplay produced, you can easily buy it on the market. But there's a reason why you can't really find an investor, investment banker as a contractor, or it's, it's harder to hire a freelance human resources manager, and so on. So that's kind of the brief overview of that paper. And then the second paper, and that one, we're particularly interested about women participating in independent work opportunities. And one of the reasons we were motivated to look at this is because we saw that there was a large variation across different gig economy platforms with respect to female participation on those platforms. So for example, from 2014 to 2015, 87% of independent workers on the platform, the e-commerce platform Etsy, were female, while only 14% of workers on Uber were, were female. And by the way, for Etsy, that's their like year after year. It's always above 85%. Same things with Care.com with 95% female workers. And majority of those roles are nannies, dog walkers, or personal care aides on Care.com. So in our paper, we start off with the guiding theoretical framework from the gender and economics research, which basically points to this concept of temporal flexibility. And so that research says that women on the margin will self-select into jobs that have greater temporal flexibility or that allow for greater temporal flexibility. And so what we do in this paper is similar to the first one. We say, okay, let's try to empirically test this and see if temporal flexibility is also a guiding principle for why women may self-select into some independent work opportunities versus other independent work opportunities. And we do this, again, going back to the ONET database, we pull out the characteristics that would be indicative of temporal flexibility. Some of those characteristics are the same ones that Claudia Golden uses. She also uses ONET, the ONET database, to look for temporal flexibility characteristics. So we test the same ones. Why don't you explain who Claudia Golden is? Oh, yeah. So Claudia Golden is a prominent gender economist at Harvard. She did some of the best work on the gender wage gap. And trying to figure out what are the factors that contribute to the gender wage gap. So she was able to isolate like education, industry. And now she points to the remaining gender wage gap, she says, is limited to this concept of temporal flexibility and jobs. Basically, from her work, we can draw out that if jobs allowed for greater temporal, if some jobs are structured in a way that allowed for greater flexibility, the gender wage gap might entirely disappear. And that's what we get from her latest research on this. She has a great paper called The Great Convergence. If any of your readers are interested, it it was published in the American Economic Review. And it points to this concept of, you know, the last remaining thing we have to fix is this temporal flexibility in, in occupations. Okay. Thank you so much for the overview. I think you covered this somewhat, but I just want to make sure that listeners have clear in their minds kind of the definitions of the different kinds of work that we're talking about. And you outline gig work, freelance, and contractor. What are the similarities and differences across those three different kinds of, or three different names that we have for kind of similar kinds of work? So... Freelancers, gig work, contracting, economists refer to this type of work as alternative labor arrangements. And the reason is because they're trying to contrast it with what's called traditional labor arrangements, which is being an employee. And so 
freelance work, gig work, contracting, they're characterized by short-term contracts. And there is not a dependence on an organization or a company for work. Now, freelancers are more likely to be in knowledge work professions or creative work professions, such as musicians, actors, writers. Gig workers, we often think of as Uber drivers or DoorDash drivers or people who are using the platform, who are getting their work primarily through the intermediary platform. Often, because it's called gig, we think about it as they're doing it as a side job or as supplemental, as supplemental income. And contract work might involve like high-skilled contractors, so consultants or middle-skilled contractors such as electrician, electricians or carpenters or construction workers. But what all of them have in common is that they get their income not from being an employee, but from selling their services on the market, so to speak. So across either peer-to-peer or with different firms. So there's not that standard employer-employee married relationship. You know, it's interesting to me the way that these categories sort of reflect. We have we have such a fluid economy and it's and it's grown and it's or increased in its fluidity over time. And so we're kind of in this transition from our previous understanding of what it meant to work to kind of for growing numbers of people that are working, but under really different definitions and expectations. Have you picked up anything in your research about sort of the psychological impact on workers of this, of that fluidity itself? Is that, is that something you've ever looked at? Not really the psychological impact, but I would say we looked at surveys about their motivation. Almost every survey, I mean, I'm working on a separate paper where we're summarizing, I have like a table of 18 different studies where they ask a similar question about what's the primary motivation for engaging in independent work. And across the board, across all of these surveys, Brent, it's flexibility of work, right? Being able to have a flexible work schedule, being able to set your own hours. And by the way, there's other interesting research, couple different economics papers that find that those who are likely to enter independent work jobs or freelancing or gig work have recently just come out of unemployment or have recently had an income loss of some sort. And so I find that interesting too as a motivation. Some of that work is based less on surveys and more so there was a study that used financial data and another study that used tax data to be able to find this. So you're kind of seeing two things going on here, which is one, flexibility, and two, it's this source of income for people who just face some sort of income loss or unemployment. Yeah. So that that fluidity is both the blessing and the, I won't call it a curse, but the question mark <laughs> for workers. Matt, I think you had some thoughts that you wanted to bring up here on, in terms of trends in, in the gig economy. Yeah, thanks, Brent. And thanks, Leah, again, for joining us. So as a researcher in this space, you know, Brent and I are just starting to delve into this a little bit. And one of the things that we find difficult to kind of parse out is 
really understanding what the gig economy is, which in your papers, you've affect, you know, you've attempted to do that. And you've also written about how there's kind of a divergence between sources like the Bureau of Labor Statistics or McKinsey and other big sources that try to define and measure how big the gig economy actually is. And from our perspective, it makes it kind of hard for us to, to study it without knowing really, really, you know, in the labor market, how much does gig work really account for it, right? And so can you talk a little bit about why there is such contradiction in reports out there about how big the gig economy is? And then building on that, can you discuss the trends in the gig economy that we should be paying attention to to better understand what that growth really looks like? Yes, definitely. That's a great, that's a great question, Matt. So one thing I just want to point out too is when we see the headlines of the gig economy, it doesn't mean that you know they're just talking about Uber and DoorDashes. When you look DoorDash drivers, for example, when you look at the methodology of how they're measuring and what they're measuring as the gig economy, it's often people who are legally classified as independent contractors. That's the Bureau of Labor Statistics study that I'll get to in a, in a second here. So that's just one thing to point out is it's not just Uber and DoorDash or a couple of these platforms. Those studies are actually picking up independent contractors in general who are also, like I said, freelance musicians or nannies or there's freelance nutritionists. I'm thinking of some of the interesting different ones that came up when we pulled together our independent workers. So in terms of the differences in these studies, so it comes down to this. And there is a whole paper written specifically about these differences. There are some people, there are some organizations or government groups like the Bureau of Labor Statistics and some academics who use survey data to try to understand the size and the growth of the gig economy. But then we have other relatively new studies that are actually using administrative tax data. That administrative tax data provides a more accurate picture of what's going on with independent workers for a variety of reasons that are related to problems with survey methodology. And so when we look at the administrative tax data, some of these are available on the IRS website. They look specifically for workers who have income coming from independent contracting income, and they're able to isolate whether they're small businesses who have employees, so they take those completely out of the study and are really honed in on those workers who are independent workers, gig workers, freelancers. And what we find is that there has been a growth of workers who get independent work income. I'll name one particular study that came out this past year. For any listeners who are interested, it's called Independent Contractors in the U.S. New Trends from 15 Years of Administrative Tax Data with Catherine Lim as the first co-author there. So that one is interesting. It finds that the share of workers with independent contractor income has grown by 22% since 2001, and that the majority of the growth occurred prior to 2011. And that's important to highlight because that means it occurred prior to the gig economy takeoff in, in the US. And they also find that the industries with the most growth and independent contractor income came from professional, scientific, and technical services, followed by healthcare. And that's important to highlight too, because we're seeing... So again, there's this image about with headlines and what we see in, in the news is that, oh, the growth in the gig economy is happening from mostly low-skilled sectors and with digital platforms. But in fact, 
this tax data showing like, look, most of this growth has happened prior to 2011. And we're talking about industries like professional, scientific, technical services, and healthcare, which are not the image of the gig economy, so to speak. And one other thing that was found in this particular study was that there is greater growth in workers getting their primary source of income from independent contracting, which these authors concluded seems to show that there might be a structural changes happening in the United States with independent contracting. So let me follow up on that just for a second. When you talk about the growth among professional scientific, those categories of workers that we don't really think of as, you know, contract or gig economy workers, do we know anything more granular than that? I mean, in terms of what kinds of work within those categories might be in the gig economy? So that particular study didn't pull out those roles, Brent, but we've seen others that talk about like software developer. Developers, by the way, is a one of the... I was looking at from, from the firm level, that's one of the greatest number of the type of contractors that firms will work with. So that might be... That would be in that category of professional, scientific, and technical services. But this particular study didn't isolate it into the type of roles. I'm just thinking of other things that I've seen, and it was software developers growth in software developers or other computer-related roles, web developers. I remember that coming up a couple of times. So I think those are the, the type of roles that, that we're talking about. So to what degree... I wanted to get into this a little bit later, but we may as well do it now. To what degree do we see that those kinds of tasks actually not just being not inside companies in the United States, but not inside the United States at all? That if you're looking for a gig worker who can do software development, companies end up hiring from China, from India, from elsewhere in the world. I'm just interested in whether this is another aspect of how the talent pool available to businesses just keeps growing because of these technologies and these employment arrangements. So Brent, that's a, that's a great question too. And actually, I'm going to draw on another research project that I did to answer this, which is specifically with regards to software developer talent. So I was at New York University School of Law as a research fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute. And we got a John Templeton Foundation grant to analyze technology startups in the United States. And we part of it was in a broad measure too. But we got to first interview and do a lot of field work with technology startup CEOs across the US from New York City to Boston, Silicon Valley and Austin. We did over 125 interviews. And we also talked to venture capitalists and accelerators and other members of the startup community. And then we did a follow-up survey hosted at NYU Law that was just for technology startup CEOs in the US. One of the things that came across in the interviews and in the survey research was that a lot of these young technology startups, they need software developer talent. They're facing a hard time finding that talent in the United States. And because of a variety of visa restrictions, for example, H-1B visa restrictions and others, they're unable to bring the talent that they need into the US as employees. So what do they do instead? They actually contract with software developers abroad. And the most common answer was that they contracted with software developers in 
Eastern European countries, Belarus and Estonia, Ukraine, I remember came up in a bunch of different answers. And it's not like they don't want to work with software developers in, in the U, like in the US. It's just that their answers seem to indicate there was a bit of a shortage and there was a lot of bidding up of wages for, for current software developers. A lot of them will take jobs with Google or Microsoft where they pay a lot more. And so technology, young technology startups, these are the group of people we were interviewing. It was not already established technology startups, but you know, early in their formative years. They still need that software developer talent. And majority of them who said that they needed it and couldn't, and couldn't access it in the US, they just worked with them abroad. And this came across in our survey results too. But it was just something surprising to me because going into this project, we weren't expecting that would be the, the main issue. We asked all the interviewees if they had a magic wand and they could change any you know, policy or regulation, I should say, because we, we wanted to know specifically what were the types of regulations that and, and how they might have been influencing technology startups. We asked them, you, know, you have a magic wand, you could change anything, what would it be? The majority of them said that they would find a way to make it easier to bring in this talent, specifically software development talent that they need, that they need to work with. In the survey questions, this came across too. We asked, you know, are there any issues with finding the right talent? Almost all of them said yes. And then when we asked what type of talent specifically, we asked them, you know, is it business development? Is it marketing? Is it that? Is it this? And again, majority of them said software developer talent in particular. So it's really interesting. I, I think about this in the context of, you know, our very fraught debates about immigration in this country. And, you know, we we've thought of this primarily as a sort of low skill phenomenon, you know, that we're bringing in workers who don't necessarily have the kinds of skills that would compete with our middle and upper wage jobs. But in fact, it seems like you know, the, again, the technology demand side and the supply side seems to be pushing people toward a kind of virtual immigration. Do you think that's right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the that's one of the cool things and one of the surprising things that we noticed from from these interviews is that they had these decentralized teams from not across the U.S. or distributed teams, but across the world, and they were able to work on these projects with team members across the world. And again, if you have a technology startup, you don't need just one software developer talent. You might need several different individuals, especially depending on the like how complex it is on the thing that you're working on. So I thought that was fascinating. And another thing to point out is platforms like Etsy.com or Upwork.com, when you put out an ad that, you know, I'm a writer and I can produce a press release, your customers can come from across the US, or sorry, across the world. I mean, they don't have to be only in the US. And same on the supply side. If you put out an ad on Upwork.com right now and you're like, okay, I need someone to create a course for me, a syllabus for a course on entrepreneurship and public policy, that like supply side can come from around the US. And so we've just massively, like, I think these digital platforms have massively changed how we're doing work, right? So both on the demand side and the supply side of things. Just have a, a follow-up speaking of, you know, supply and demand and market forces. 
you know, one of the things Brent and I are, you know, starting to think about is, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in, in making this kind of distinction, but it seems like the gig economy right now is is truly free market driven. Like there's very little government intervention or regulations that are inhibiting it from growth or, or anything like that. It's it's pretty much a freewheeling monster all on its own. And one of the things we're starting to think about is like, what does the future look like if we kind of just let the market take you know, take and run with it and, and what types of regulations might be good or bad for it. And so we wanted to get a sense from you, what are the pros and cons to the way that the gig economy currently operates without any sort of intervention? And then, you know, what should we be thinking about in terms of like, if we're not careful or if, if we don't intervene, something bad might happen. Does, does that question make sense? Like, what should we be thinking about in yeah. terms of staying in this gig economy? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's already policies that are trying to limit the gig economy. So in California, in particular, as we know, California's AB5 was passed in 2019, and it was implemented in 2020. And what it did was adopt what's called an ABC test, but a stricter version of the ABC test. What it was is the way it defined what constitutes as what constitutes an independent contractor made it difficult for organizations and companies to be able to work with people who are independent contractors. Can you back up and say what the ABC test is? Yes. So ABC, these are three factors that must all be met for a worker to be classified as an independent contractor. And if any one of those factors doesn't hold up, then they must be considered an employee. So the three factors are this. A is that the worker has to be free from control of the organization hiring it. That's my summary of what A actually says. The B factor is that the worker has to perform a task that is outside the usual course of business for that organization. And then C is that the worker is engaged in in what's called an independently established trade or profession. And that trade and profession is the same one that they're performing for the company that hired them to do this. So that's the ABC test. And it creates a, a higher barrier of being classified as an independent contractor. It's in contrast to what is... a There's usually a six-factor test. And instead of that six-factor test, California scrapped it and said, okay, we're going with just these three-factor three factor tests. So some of these factors are more difficult to satisfy. Like B might be pretty, pretty difficult because it might be an impossible test to satisfy for writers, for example, who create the product that publications publish in the usual course of their business. And the same goes for maybe musicians or comedians and others like that. That's good. So, so you say... California's AB5 went further than that. Right. So they added... So some states, by the way, have the ABC test. And California has like a slightly more restrictive version of the ABC test. What we have on the national level, like the common law test, which is the one that the IRS uses, is a six-factor test. And that one, with that one, it's easier to be classified as an independent contractor. So as a result, California's ABC test and their specific version of it made it a lot more difficult for workers to be classified as independent contractors. By the way, they added some rules that, for example, if 
if a writer produced more than 35 pieces of publication with a particular organization, they had to be classified as an employee. <laughs> so there were all of these various conditions. It ended up kind of backfiring because they ended up exempting a lot of roles. There was some pushback by the creative community. As we know, musicians, singers, dancers, a lot of them are freelancers. This particular rule hit them hard. There ended up being like a public campaign about it. And in September of 2020, California actually exempted music and a a bunch of these other creative professions. Presumably podcasters were in there as well. (laughs) I don't remember. They ended up with (laughs) over a (laughs) hundred. They ended up with over a hundred roles that were exempted from this rule. By the way, we're seeing some of this pop up right now too on a national level. So the the PRO Act, which is a piece of labor legislation, it was recently passed in the House. And I think it sounded as of yesterday, Biden might include elements of the PRO Act in in his infrastructure plan. But anyway, one part of the PRO Act, so there's one, one aspect of it is about unions. And the other part of the PRO Act is to implement a similar ABC test. So a stricter test of being classified as an independent contractor. So I'm not sure how this will do, you know, in the political (laughs) battles, but we might see like a stricter test of independent contractors nationwide. So this is, I mean, it's being set up as the struggle between or conflict between, again, we were talking about the flexibility and fluidity of the economy and how gig work is just like, it just goes wherever it needs to go in order to meet the demands you know, the spot demands of the of an economy that is changing and, you know, demands are changing and companies can turn it on and off as they need it. And that's all great. And then we have the the other side of this, which is thinking about worker security. You know, mm-hmm. like the flexibility is wonderful. And then it leaves open these challenges around because it can't it it switches on and off it leaves workers exposed to not only like no benefits no, no healthcare and retirement and things like that you know that that's that's a concern over the long term but also you know just the the economic uncertainty of you know of the work so how do you think about those challenges is is the flexibility of such enormous value to us and the economy the functioning of the economy so great that it's just the the insecurity is just something that we have to accept or are we on a trajectory where we're going to figure out how to balance these things so that's an excellent question Brent and i think the tension is being caused partly because of like the mismatch of our regulations and institutions with these independent workers and the flexibility of work. So what I mean by that is like safety net benefits and others are all tied to employment. And so as a result, workers who are, you know, in gig economy platforms and as freelancers, they don't have access to these employment-based protections, paid leave, sick leave, minimum wage, overtime regulations. And that's kind of where we're seeing this tension, right? The reason the reason this is becoming a problem when we talk about this is that you have this growing workforce that is left out, so to speak, from from these benefits that are afforded to traditional employees. 
But the way I think about it is like, let's challenge that narrative. I'm thinking more about things. It's a little bit more radical, but like, what would a system of portable benefits look like? Or what would a system look like where benefits are not tied to employment? And I think this is particularly important for future of work discussions too. I think we've heard other scholars, for example, bring up that things like universal basic income might be a good replacement for some of these regulations and safety net provisions that are tied to employment. And the reason it would be better or important is because thinking decades down the line with technological disruption and growing automation in the workplace, a lot of individuals for some period of time might be unemployed. Well, what happens when all of your benefits or all of these things are tied to employment? It doesn't really like it doesn't really make sense in that way. And I just want to point out one more thing about workers who are independent workers. When you look at surveys, they show across the board that independent workers actually prefer these flexible labor arrangements and they don't want to be traditional employees. And I mean that for a majority of them. So there are some 10 to 20% that would say, actually, no, I would prefer to be an employee. So, but a majority of them would say that they prefer their independent work arrangements. And instead, what they say that they want is they would like access to flexible or portable benefits, which are benefits that are not tied to a particular employer or a particular job. And so if we're thinking about kind of the way forward and, and how to address the real challenges that independent workers face. It's not about making them employees or trying to tie them to a particular job. It would be trying to think of how to match the flexibility of their jobs with flexible benefits, which is, mm. what, which is what they prefer. So again, it's kind of a radical notion because in the US, there are policies and subsidies and incentives that tie benefits to employment. So I'm the one I have in mind right now is the employer-sponsored uh, health insurance subsidies, right? Mm-hmm. So it kind of creates a barrier for portable benefits. And that's why I'm saying it's more of a radical idea. But I think it's important to try to engage like those kind of discussions because you know we're in the future now. We're in the 21st century. We want to think about what are policy reforms that make sense for the 21st century not what are policy reforms that would you know, drag us back to the 20th century and what work looked like in the 20th century, which is that people stayed in their jobs for a longer period of time. They were tied to their jobs, whereas we're maybe witnessing a bit more of... There was a book called The Rise of the Creative Class, and it kind of points to this new generation of workers who want to be more independent, who are more creative, and who want more flexibility. And I think to enable those workers to step into the future, we want to think about more innovative reforms like portable benefits. Yeah, I think that's really that's a really good help good and helpful way to think about this. You know, we see this in the most recently in the unemployment insurance system where the statutes, regulations that govern that system just don't they just don't account for these new work arrangements and generated their own little mini disaster in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic with, you know, gig workers, you know, suddenly being authorized to get unemployment benefits, but states being unable to deliver those benefits effectively, efficiently, and securely, most importantly, with a lot of fraud, both in terms of the US and actually from overseas as well. So 
yeah, there's a huge need for kind of updating these laws that govern our work arrangements to, to have them take an, an account for these employees. Let's close on the just the question of acceleration of gig work and what you've seen in the last year as we've come through this pandemic. I mean, I, it seems to me that you know one of the things that we've noticed is that a lot of workers who didn't actually have flexibility through their employers have gotten a real taste of what flexibility means, both you know positive and negative. That may actually increase some sympathy and attention on workers who, you know, for workers who have that, there's less difference right now between traditional work arrangements and gig arrangements. What else have you noticed in terms of the impact of the pandemic on this question? So we don't have much, but there is an annual survey that comes out. It's sponsored by Upwork, but it's called Freelancing in America. And what they notice is, and they did a COVID impact assessment. They just released it, two, I think, about two months ago. So what they found is that freelancing actually grew during this time and that some type of work was reduced. Some type of freelancing work was reduced. Others started engaging in freelancing work during this time. But on net, that freelancing increased during COVID. And one of the other things that they found is that the demographics look slightly different for the type of work that increased. They saw there were much, the new freelancers, the post-COVID new freelancers, as they call it, they were more male. They were in more professional services, some in finance industries that, that came out. And then they were also in more urban areas. And so that was the, the main three things that they saw different in the post-COVID freelancers, like the new freelancers, as opposed to the, you know, their current freelancers, which you saw more females joining sometimes. And then there was with this particular one, I'm forgetting, I think it was about 75% of the new freelancers were men, which they hadn't seen before in their previous, in their previous annual studies. So yeah, it looks that, like yeah. they increased, right? It right. looks like it increased, but that the, it looks slightly different than they, what, what they've previously found. So it's it aligns very well with what we've seen in terms of the uptick in entrepreneurship and business startups during the pandemic. That's going to be a really interesting one, I think, for The Economist to unpack over time is like what happened there. There were a lot of layoffs, obviously, you know, unemployment spiked. People began to look around. There's been some speculation like the additional unemployment benefits kind of provided people with some freedom and flexibility that they hadn't had before to think about career changes and about becoming sole proprietors of, you know, for the whatever their dream was for starting a business. I'm looking forward to the next five years of books about what happened in the economy and elsewhere as a result of this. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Where can listeners of this podcast follow you? So thank you, Brent, for for having me on this show. You can Google me. I have a website, leahpalagashvili.com, or you can go to www.marcatus.org under research you know, there's a tab that says our scholars, and you should be able to to find me on there. And are you on social media? Yes, like- I'm on Twitter, but not as active. My Twitter handle handle is at Miss Leah P. 
it's easier than writing out my full last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> smart, so, smart. I was like, if I need to give this to people multiple times, I'm just going to do the first initial of my last name. <laughs> when I signed up for Twitter, I let the system generate my name and it came out Oral B. And people think that I'm it's some sort of play on toothbrushes. Uh, <laughs> but no, it was just whatever Twitter came up with. So you, yours is much better, much better. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating work. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you on the gig economy, gig workers, and trying to get the policy right so we don't interfere unnecessarily in one of the, you know, one of the most dynamic sectors of the economy. Thank you, Brent, for having me on the show. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.